Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sunup. The Daily Sunup podcast is a conversation with the Colorado Sun. See our trust indicators at coloradosun.com slash ethics. It's Thursday, February 8th. Today, the temperature team takes on big public health issues in gun safety and air pollution. Before we begin, did you know the Colorado Sun has a mobile app so you can read the news from anywhere? Whether you're on the couch, taking the bus to work, or in the car on the way to the mountains, visit coloradosun.com app to download today. Now let's go back in time with some Colorado history. On this day in 1879, Governor Pitkin signed a bill founding what was called the Colorado Insane Asylum in Pueblo to treat and cure, quote, persons as may become insane from any cause. Initiated with land donated by U.S. Senator George Chilcott, its first building welcomed 11 patients from Illinois in October 1879. Despite some opposition, the facility evolved, changing its name to the Colorado State Hospital in 1917 to improve its image and expand significantly. By the 1960s, it housed over 6,000 patients. Governor McNichols' reforms in the 1960s introduced medication treatments, ultimately reducing patient numbers. Renamed the Colorado Mental Health Institute in 1991, it now serves several hundred residents. Before we continue, the Colorado Sun has virtual and in-person events all year long. Join conversations on politics, healthcare, the environment, transportation, education, and much more. Sign up for the free events monthly email so you can be the first in line for registration. Visit coloradosun.com events today. Next, our feature story. Hello on this Thursday. Thanks for joining the Colorado Sun podcast. Today is our temperature podcast with John Ingold, where he and I talk about stories related to the climate and the environment and personal health and how all those things intersect. How are you doing, John? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you? Good. Thanks to everybody who listens on a regular basis, and we appreciate the regular listeners and any new listeners that add us to their podcasting queue. John, this week you were talking about the a study from some important Colorado sources on guns, guns ownership, um, gun use and misuse, and it really revealed some interesting numbers that maybe some reporters know, but the general public really doesn't know when people are asked what they think is true about guns in the culture in Colorado. So tell us some of the highlights of what you found from the study. Yeah, so this is uh, this is really interesting and it's also really important because if you've followed this discussion about uh, gun violence, gun safety, wanting to look at uh, firearm-related things through a public health lens, you know that one of the challenges that researchers have long faced is that there's sort of a dearth of research out there uh, about this, simply because there's just some cultural and there were previously some governmental obstacles in the way of actually being able to study these things. So we have um, some researchers at CU who are connected to the School of Public Health who have, um, they work in something called the Firearm Injury Prevention Initiative. And they, uh, uh, last year, conducted, uh, for the first time, really a large-scale survey about uh, gun use, gun ownership, attitudes towards firearms, uh, perceptions around risks and, and how that might influence whether you get a firearm. And uh, they came up with some really, uh, really surprising, interesting 
uh, data, one of which is um, that roughly half of Coloradans uh, grew up in a home that had a gun. Uh, about 45% now currently live in a house that has a gun. Um, a little shy of one third uh, themselves own a firearm. And then you start getting into some of those uh, that you mentioned, some of these uh, perceptions about why people own firearms, their their beliefs for why they have them, and 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 what they think of when they think of um, what we often call gun violence, but what one of the researchers I talked to would would describe as a uh, firearm related harms. And the difference being the public perceptions that the most gun deaths occur because of what we hear about in the media, which is homicide and which is uh, random or targeted shootings that might be uh, mass shootings. Whereas what's really causing a huge percentage of gun deaths is are from other causes. And what are those other causes? Right. Yeah. So um, you, you just, you, you hit the nail on the head there. Most, uh, not, not most, but a plurality, right? The most popular uh, answer when you ask people what you think um, causes most gun deaths, people would say homicides, and they think, you know, gun violence. They think of violence people commit towards towards one another. Uh, but in Colorado, and this is true uh, across the West and across the country, uh, the the large majority of deaths that occur uh, related to a firearm are suicides. Um, in Colorado, it's something like four to one. Uh, you know, suicides to homicides. And then you have accidental shootings and, and other things in there as well. So uh, this uh, is one misconception, right? When you think about bringing a firearm into your home, uh, the survey showed that people are generally thinking sort of externally about what what's the value of that. So when people were asked, uh, why do you own firearms? The most popular answers were personal protection, family protection, property protection. And then uh, after that, you had uh, some folks saying they wanted to exercise a constitutional right and other people uh, who talked about hunting or, or other reasons. But the, the discussion around suicides doesn't necessarily end up playing into that as much. People don't, don't take into consideration, oh, hey, this, this gun might actually be used to harm someone in my family. This gun might actually be used to harm someone close to me. And that's not to say that that makes firearms bad or that, you know, people would be irresponsible to have them in the home, but it starts spurring this conversation around, okay, you have them in the home. What's your plan for safe storage? What's your plan for, uh, if somebody's having a mental health crisis, what do you do with the firearm in that situation? And, and the survey got into some of those, those, uh, those other questions as well that we'll be diving into in future stories. As you mentioned, it does create public policy implications, even if we can't agree necessarily on what happens with guns in the public arena. There, the reason, one of the reasons to do the study is to say, are there some other things we can talk about that people might agree on or a majority could agree on to take action on within the home uh, in terms of gun safety, on storage? Um, this has played out in the public arena just within the last week with parents um, who are accused of being allowed to, uh, having a firearm that was in their home be allowed to be used by one of their children in a public school shooting. And so should that have implications for those kinds of policy decisions? Yeah. I mean, those are exactly the kind of public health messages that are, are being talked about. You know, do you have safe storage options? 
Um, do you check your guns regularly to make sure, even if you're not using them? And this was one thing that that, that the researchers found that uh, you know, close to sixty percent of firearm owners in Colorado report not firing their guns at all in the past twelve months. So, okay, you're not using them, but are you checking them? Are you making sure they're there? Are you making sure they're still safely secured and stored? So again, it, it sort of points the way now for developing these public health messaging campaigns that may actually um, help make homes safer when, when they have firearms in them. So Mike, I, w- I wanted to pivot here and go to, to some stuff you've been working on, which uh, our, our, our old friend Suncor and uh, pretty major news that came out about uh, penalties that the state has handed down against them. Yes, and again, talking about this intersection of personal health and public health policy when it comes to Suncor, because what Suncor puts out into the environment has big impacts on the personal health of people in the neighborhood. And then in a wider sense, um, creates ozone and greenhouse gas pollution that affects everybody's health across Colorado. And so what's happened now is the state has issued a new set of fines and settlements related to Suncor and their actions up through June of 2021. So going back a couple of years, but Suncor is kind of a repeat offender, repeat violator uh, by putting out everything from nitrogen oxides to benzene to hydrogen sulfides into the environment and do it at rates that are above what they're allowed to do under their permits and what the EPA allows to be put out into the air. And so the state has said, uh, we need to take tougher action because uh, Suncor is just not doing the things that they could be doing to limit that. And so with this new settlement is a two and a half million dollar cash fine and then $8 million worth of changes that Suncor needs to make to how it operates with the equipment better equipment, newer equipment that will, they hope, um, the state hopes, the neighborhood hopes, limit these releases in the future. This is all actions that the neighborhood groups and environmental activists and some legislators and local elected officials have been encouraging the state to take for a long time now with Suncor and are saying, look, this only goes through twenty half of 2021. The state admits that it is still investigating uh, releases by Suncor that have taken place since then in the two-year cycle from 2021 to 2023 and could be right back here in a few months or next year talking about more violations and more fines. So one of the things that we asked the state was, we've seen this movie before and literally these numbers that we're talking about with Suncor are less than a rounding error on the profits that they reported in one quarter in 2023. They reported just under $2 billion in profit overall as a Canadian corporation with a big Colorado operation. And so this, what does $10 million and only $2.5 million in cash actually mean to them? Are we, can we see, have a sense that there's meaningful changes being made and that we won't be right back here in a couple of years talking about the same things? Yeah, well, so that's, I think, the big question. And if this fine, which is enormous by state standards, if this fine can't do it, what actually would? So the state is saying that they would like more power, that yes, uh, that it pales in comparison to Suncor's overall profits, but that they have noticed since the last fine of $9 million a couple of years ago, they have noticed fewer leaks, uh, fewer exceedances of what the EPA and the state allow. Suncor says that its own monitoring shows that it is improving. 
neighbors obviously are not convinced, but they do say at least this find is a step in the right direction. Part of the settlement is an agreement by Suncor to double the number of so-called fence line monitors that are required. The state passed a law in 2021 that required a few facilities that put out a lot of pollution to have so-called fence line monitoring, which means, as it sounds, right at the border with their neighborhood, a bunch of monitors that measure the air and put out public data in real time that let people know and also have everything from reversed 911 texting when there has been an exceedance and they people might want to know that to some other monitoring requirements. So Suncor has agreed to double the state minimum on what those monitors will show and added in some new toxins that will be monitored that aren't even in the state law. So they say like things like that will help, but the state also says what it needs is legislation. They are negotiating with some legislators to bring forward a bill that will give them in effect a special refinery auditor within the health department that is dedicated to looking at Suncor full-time figuring out what regulatory changes they need to make to do a better job monitoring Suncor. So they will be pushing for that at the legislature this, legislature this year. And I know you'll be on top of that and following that all the way through. We will. We'll be working on a story specifically about that idea of an auditor because we think that's really interesting and want to know more about what it might imply. So we'll be following up and appreciate everybody listening. And thanks for your reporting this week, John. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Enjoy the conversation. You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. After hearing some gut-wrenching testimony from former foster children, a Colorado House committee has advanced a bill that would give foster kids greater rights. All four Republicans on the committee voted against the bill, saying some of the protections, including religious freedom and LGBTQ protections, might keep Christian families from becoming foster families. The bill is awaiting a final vote in the House before it would move to a Senate committee. Colorado already has a shortage of foster homes, with 3,730 children in foster care and only 2,500 certified homes. A troubled multi-county clinic based in Delta is being investigated by the state's Behavioral Health Administration for a multitude of allegations. State records show the claims include integrated insight community care, falsified treatment records, and that its founder had an inappropriate romantic relationship with a client and gave center staff drugs and alcohol on the job. This after insurer Rocky Mountain Health Plans ended its contract with the clinic January 18th, citing concerns about patient safety. Clinic founder Joel Watts has denied wrongdoing and said he would even welcome a criminal investigation. Coloradans agree social media is bad for youth mental health. Now, state lawmakers want to do something about it. A new bill would require social media platforms to show in-app warnings to Colorado teens with information and resources about the harms of social media after one hour of use or when the teen is using social media after 10 p.m. The warnings would also include links to data on social media's health effects and links to information on how to use existing social media platform features that allow users to limit screen time. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. Now, a quick message from our team. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. My name is Jason Blevins. I'm the outdoors writer here at the Colorado Sun, co-founder of the Colorado Sun. Um, I'm on the uh, weekly podcast with David Krause every Monday. And I also write a weekly newsletter. Comes out every Thursday. It's called The Outsider. Um, take a look at uh, each issue has sort of early glimpses of stories. I got stuff on housing, 
high country business, high country culture, public lands, uh, public land managers, kind of just about anything kind of interesting and happening on the Western Slope. Try to get into it. Ski industry stuff. Um, I invite you to come check it out. It's one of the many newsletters we have at the Colorado Sun. Um, head to coloradosun.com slash join and become a member and support the Colorado Sun. Appreciate you guys listening. Thanks.